want to remind everyone that following the worship service tonight, we're going to have that going away party for the Grove family. And so wanted to invite you to come to that. Mark, I think, was too humble to uh, announce his own going away party and his family's. Uh, that's typical of Mark. Uh, but we want to make sure that we give them a wonderful send-off tonight. And so that will be your opportunity to do that tonight. So I invite you after the service to join us there. In a recent podcast, I heard a speaker talking about what he termed concept creep. Concept creep occurs when the definition of a term that was coined for a specific situation is broadened to include many more situations that were never envisioned in the original term. You might think of the word trauma. The word was originally specified and specifically applied to incidents and incidents in which a person experiences a significant physical brunt force. That's what it was for. But the term is now being applied to even small physical incidences. This is called vertical creep. It goes from the the physical incidents and works its way up to something that's a very small physical incidence. But also, he talks about horizontal creep. Horizontal creep is when you apply it to non-physical events. Uh, So you have somebody that says, oh, I'm so traumatized by that whatever. And so you realize here's this word, it's changed in its meaning from its original use to something much less. We can see the same thing happening with the word abuse, uh, which used to have a much more specific understanding uh, for most people. And now it's something that's so used and so common that it basically renders it very unhelpful. Uh, Now we know why this can happen. The original word carries a kind of a weightiness or gravitas that people want to import to legitimize their experience by using that word for their experience that makes it sound like it's really something that needs to be noticed. And so we can see the similar thing happening with the word love. What can be understood about godly love from the scriptures can be cheapened, can be degraded, can be confused to the point where it's hardly recognizable. And and we can bring in the culture because of the things that we listen, read, and watch, uh, we can begin to bring that kind of cheapened version when we look at love in the scriptures. This evening, with the help of the Lord, we're going to peel away some of those uh, misconceptions of the term's meaning, and then we'll present the biblical description that we can apply to our own lives. Let's ask the Lord's help as we do so. Father, we do pray that your spirit would be active in our hearts to open our eyes and our ears to hear, to see what you have for us. And may the application be made uh, to each one of our lives. Uh, Lord, help us to be attentive And may you be glorified as we reflect on your love for us. May you be glorified, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Having spent several weeks examining the works of the flesh, we now turn our attention to the fruit of the Spirit. In our last sermon, we examined what it means to be led by the Spirit or to walk in the Spirit. Now we want to consider what would be the fruit of that relationship in walking with God, with the Holy Spirit. What would someone who is indwelt by the Spirit of God expect to see as a result of that relationship? We're told in Proverbs that he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but how much more so would we expect a change in our lives with the Holy Spirit indwelling us? And this is what we saw in the scripture reading earlier, as Mr. Quo read, Galatians 5. Let me know quickly that the fruit of the Spirit here is not comprehensive or exhaustive. We noted in the works of the flesh that there are other sins that were not listed in that, uh, that text just, just before this one in 19 and 20. The same is true of the fruit of the Spirit. 
When you look at the list, you may notice there are other character qualities or fruit uh, that we see in other passages, such as holiness, hope, courage, thankfulness, perseverance, humility. But we're going to concern ourselves with just those listed here uh, as we go through this text. And we're going to begin with this idea, this, the concept, and the, the subject of love. Now, I plan to take a sermon per term. And if you know anything about these terms, you know that what's said about uh, each of these is going to be very limited uh, to the volume of information and the illustrations of each of them. If you just get a list of all the places where the word love is mentioned in Scripture, it's overwhelming, uh, probably more so than the other ones. In fact, if you want a serious treatment of the subject, you can go to any number of other places. Jonathan Edwards, for example, has a book called Charity or Love and Its Fruits. Uh, the book is over 350 pages, no illustrations, uh, so it could take you a while to work through that. But if we think through the fruit of the Spirit, it's a very weighty subject. And one, as I said, all we can do is really just kind of jump across the mountain peaks in this uh, sermon series. In fact, uh, we mentioned at the beginning that we live in a culture that's so watered down the word love, uh, they've so watered down the word love that we have first to clean it up uh, in our own minds. We need to to kind of purge our thinking of some of these cultures' uh, misapplications um, of the word. And so we're going to look at the biblical definition, but first we're going to strip it away. Think of it like taking all the, the layers of paint off of a beautiful piece of furniture and finding the, the lovely wood underneath that. Let's take just a minute and strip away some of these false notions of love and how they're used in our culture. First of all, the first misconception or degradation, if you will, of the term is our culture's use of the word love in a place of what should be understood as infatuation. Many of you have experienced feelings that are associated with being attracted to the opposite sex, and these are wonderful feelings indeed. Uh, often those feelings are blossomed into relationships. Most of you, that's the way your relationship began, ended in marriage. And assuming it's all done in the accordance with Scripture, that's a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with having those feelings. But we need to make a distinction between what people describe as being in love in, in being in true love. Uh, this is what most of the time when they use in the culture the word or the, word, the phrase, I'm in love, it means they're infatuated. I like what one author wrote about the difference between love and infatuation, and he said, it is doubtful that love will begin until infatuation ends. There's an interesting insight. Second, Though the physical relationship between a husband and wife is a wonderful gift of God, the word love is often incorporated by the world to describe the physical relationship between any man, any woman, apart from covenantal commitments. In fact, there is a Greek word that's used to describe this kind of love, eros, but it's not used in the scripture, and that's going to concern us today. But again, to reduce the idea of love to a mere physical act is to grossly misrepresent the highest love described in scripture and that we are to desire and to practice well a third thing a third cheapening of the word love is in the context of affirming something that we really like we say that we love pizza we love brownies we love movies we love travel and we use that word love. It's the same word. You go to your Bible and, and the Lord says that we're to love him with our heart, soul, mind, strength. Well, there's love. Love pizza, love God. Well, again, we want to make that distinction. It's not the same thing. Uh, it's not the love that God talks about in Scripture. It's not the godly love. 
But all it's really saying when we say that is that the thing makes us feel good. We like it. We have to be careful again not to reduce God's love for us or our love for him down to just a feel-good experience. The fourth thing that love is not, another misuse or degradation of the word. It's not lawlessness. This is used by many Christians when they think of it this way. They say that uh, now we've been saved by grace and now we're no longer under the law. And so now what we, we follow is not the law of God, but the law of love. You may have heard that before. That, that kind of wording is used in scripture, the law of Christ. And so they think, well, so what that means is that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are now pushed aside, and now we're just to love. Well, what does that mean? And we know that this is wrong just by looking at the scriptures, that understanding. Look at verse uh, 14 of chapter 5. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love is not some kind of ooey-gooey feeling of, well, we're not going to get into law and what's right and wrong. We're just going to have this kind of good feeling towards other people, kind of goodwill kind of thing. Romans 13.8 says the same thing. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So the law is an expression of love. The fifth thing that love is not, love is not God. Now it might sound a little bit strange, but what happens is that people can mistake or take the, the passage out of 1 John 4, 8 and say God is love, and then they turn around and say love is God. J.F. Packer says that love is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible, and that passage, that passage of God is love, it's something that's so profound. But it's a mistake to turn that around and say it the other way, as if the action or the emotion uh, exists in and of itself apart from God, and anything or anyone who mimics that is some kind of expression of God. Especially it's true of our time and so distorting the very meaning of the word that to suggest that all variations of it are some kind of expression of God is just ludicrous. In short, Christians, we, as Christians, we need to be careful not to import any of these ideas into the text and so cheapen what is one of the most glorious revelations of the Bible. The one who created you is love. It's an idea that's so radically different than man-made gods that to reflect on is really to, to drives you to just unknown depths. The biblical term is so much richer, so much deeper, so much more profound than anything that mere humans can comprehend. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians a prayer. He says, this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from the whole, whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well then, if that's true, what is love? Let's turn our attention for a few minutes and just talk about what godly love is and what he calls us to have for one another. Let's begin with an overview of the love of God, which is presented in Scripture in three categories. I think R.C. Sproul's summary here is helpful. I give him credit for that. He describes three different kinds of love, and it answers the question. I had somebody actually ask me this this week. Does God love unbelievers? Well, here's a way to, to understand that. Sproul describes three different kinds of love. The first one is the love, God's love of benevolence. And that refers to God's disposition toward everyone on the planet. It is his goodwill toward them. Even in their fallenness, we read it, for example, in Luke 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So there is a kind of understanding of God's love that there's a goodwill toward men. 
But then there's a second type that, that follows up on that. It's called the love of beneficence. The love of beneficence is similar to the love of benevolence, but rather than just referring to God's disposition of goodwill towards people, it's his, it refers to his actions of goodwill toward them. We read in Matthew 5, 45, he makes the sun rise in the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? So these are two types of love in which we can say there's a benevolence, a, a goodwill he has towards his creation and his, his created beings, and as well as his actions toward them. But finally, also Sproul describes what's called the love of complacency. It's not the way we use the word today. The word has changed in meaning over time, but it used to refer to the fact or state of being pleased with someone. Sproul describes it as a special delight and pleasure that God takes first in his son and second in all those who are united to the Son through faith by grace. Let's look at that love a little bit more closely. There are two Greek words that are used to translate love, phileo and agape. You all are familiar with those, I would assume. In the Hebrew, we think of the word hesed. Uh, the word phileo is often used with the, uh, it's used in the context of brotherly love. Uh, you've seen good examples of that this week in Philadelphia following the Super Bowl of brotherly love. Uh, played out, uh, just of course. But tonight we want to focus on that second term, agape, as it's used in scripture. Though both terms, phileo and agape, are translated love in the New Testament, the latter is more often associated with that purest form that originates from God. Let me provide then a working definition for you. I'll read it slowly twice, just so because we're going to use this as a kind of a template as we go forward. Godly love is to so highly value another that you willingly commit and act to seek the other's best no matter the cost to yourself. Godly love is to so highly value another that you willingly commit and act to seek the other's best no matter the cost to yourself. Let's look at each one of these. First thing to note in our definition is that godly love is other oriented. For love to be present, there has to be the one loving and the object of that love. That is, if there is no object of love, then there's no love present. Now, a fascinating biblical truth is that God's love is perfectly and eternally present in the love of the three persons of the Godhead for one another. (coughs) It's only because God is ever three and ever one that he can be described as love. God is love. Because in order for it to be love, there has to be a recipient of the love. Thus, there's never been a time when God did not love. It's fundamental to his very character. Now, corollary to this, what logically follows, is that a God who is not triune, a God such as Allah, or the God of the oneness Pentecostals, cannot be fundamentally loving, because until he created, there was not an object for his love. His love would, have been a, would not have been present until another showed up. It's conditional. It's not fundamental to who he is. But we see with God, because of the, the, the tripersonal God, there has always been a love for one another. It's always been present. It's fundamental to who he is. Additionally, when Scripture teaches that we are to love others as we love ourselves, it's not a command to work at loving yourself. Again, it's other-oriented. That command is a command to turn to someone other than yourself to love them. 
So again, we don't want to misunderstand when it says love others as you love yourself. It's not a way to say, well, I'll get to them. I'm going to start working on loving me. Uh, that's not what scripture is talking about. It says you already do that. You've already got that down. Now do that with other people. Notice in, the, in our scripture reading tonight in Ezekiel 16 that God describes himself anthropomorphically as walking along and seeing a baby on the side of the road. The picture is, of course, God's love for Israel, specifically Jerusalem, his people. We see that God did not turn away from this baby despite the fact that it was helpless and lost, but instead he chose to love Israel. He, he, he expressed his love on another. It was other-oriented. We'll see that that deepens from just that point. The second thing we said is that it values others. Not only is godly love other-oriented, it values others. But let's understand that valuing of the one being loved is not necessarily because of his or her uh, intrinsic value. In fact, instead, uh, outside of the inter-Trinitarian love, it's often despite the recipient's unworthiness, ingratitude, or unreciprocated love that God loves. For example, we read in Deuteronomy, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than other people, because you were the least of all peoples. But the Lord loves you, and because, uh, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep an oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. So it wasn't because Israel was such a great thing, any more than that baby on the ground was anything that was going to benefit the one that was bestowing his love on the baby. But he chose to value that baby. God chose to value Israel. See, another example of this, in, as I said, in Ezekiel 16, the prophet describes Israel as this one wanted child, again, specifically from that passage. He says, no, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. No one loved you. He said, no compassion on you. You were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by and I saw you struggling in your own blood, and I said in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant of the field. You grew, matured, and became very beautiful. C.S. Lewis, I believe, was right when he said, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Third, God's love is other-oriented. It's a love that chooses to place value on others despite their condition, but it's more than that. God's love is not only this, to place his value upon you, but also it's a love that leads him to commit himself by means of covenant. I read just a moment ago in Ezekiel 16, uh, up through verse 7, verse 8 says this, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. God's covenants are sealed by a self-maledictory oath, where he essentially commits himself to self-annihilation should he not fulfill his promises to the recipient of his love. Now, since God cannot cease to exist, that means that what he promised, he will fulfill. And he commits to doing so by means of making a covenant with his people. There's no second thought. There's no hidden agenda in the small print. There's no escape clause. Just a perfect, holy, and good God promising to bless his people. Number four. 
We've seen godly love is other-oriented. It places values in other. It covenantally commits to the good of the other. Uh, but also we see that God uh, acts in time and space to bring about his plan for their well-being. Look again, if you will, at Ezekiel 16.9. We see how this, uh, uh, this, uh, the picture of God with Israel and with Jerusalem acts on this. He's not just saying, I commit to you and then I'll get around to it. But he actually acts in uh, restoring this child. Then I washed, look at all the things that he did. I washed you in the water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and exceeded, succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed on you, says the Lord. Note that God's love acts. He bestows beauty on those that he loves and for their good. Now, when we say that godly love acts for the good of another, it's important to note that good is defined by the objective character and the actions of God. That is, good is an objective standard. And it needs to be said because we may act for another's good despite what they say they want or what they think is good. Contrary to our culture's current insanity with sexual deviancies and transgenderism, affirming someone's self-deception is not an act of love. So this leads to two corollaries to this. First, note the implications of what we just said. Godly love seeks what is best for another. That best is defined by the character of God. And if that's true, then unbelievers are not able to love with God's love because they will never seek what is best for others. That is God himself. Unbelievers will never encourage others to repent and seek Christ, to walk in humility, to trust God. And thus, they will never be able to seek the best for others. Unbelievers cannot love with a godly love. A second corollary to this is that in seeking what is best for us, there will be times when God, in fulfilling that commitment to us, it's going to hurt. And in fulfilling his commitment to love us, he's going to ordain trials and tribulations that will not be pleasant. We read in Hebrews 12, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you're God's child, you've likely experienced his discipline. But amazingly, even in the midst of these times, even in the midst of these trials and tribulations, God promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. He promises to work all things together for good as he conforms us into the image of his son. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5, <clears throat> verses 3 through 5, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, <clears throat> and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There it is, that picture of God's love poured into us and, of course, then to overflow into the lives of others. The fifth point uh, that we'll make here is that, uh, and the final point is that we'll make regarding God's love, is that in seeking what is best for us, his love compels him 
to pay whatever price is necessary to fulfill his commitment to us. Now, let's be careful here. Uh, We're not saying that God would ever act contrary to his nature. He will never sin. He will never surrender his glory for another because that would also be contrary to his nature. But it does mean that in our condition of sin, when there was no possible solution to restore us to fellowship with him, humanly speaking, God paid the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. That little baby that we pictured a moment ago in, in Ezekiel, we tend to look and say, oh, that, that poor innocent child that was unwanted. Well, that's true. I mean, in terms of the illustration, though, we want to be careful not to run too far with that. Uh, the, the condition that baby was in, the condition that we are in as human beings, is really one of our own making, isn't it? It's not that our problem is that we're unloved. The problem is that we loved ourselves covenantally in Adam. We rebelled against God, and we were the ones who propelled ourselves right down into the dirt into that helpless, pathetic condition that that baby was in. That's all of us, and that was our choice. But here we say that God shows us in the scripture that the only way out of that is something that's going to cost him so dearly, and yet that's a description, that's a a playing out of his love in our lives, isn't it? He clothed himself with flesh. He entered into this sick and lawless world, he died at the hands, suffered at the hands of outlaws. It wasn't just torture for, from humans that he suffered either. It was the very, very wrath of the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, poured out on the Son. That's why such verses as God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son should just take our breath away. Uh, we become so familiar with that, sometimes we don't reflect on what that really cost and what that meant. We read in Romans 5, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare die. But God demonstrates his love toward us, his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So remember, he didn't love us because we were lovely. He chose to make us lovely. He did not covenant with us because we deserved it. He didn't die for us because he had to, but because he chose to place his favor upon us, to love us, and to prepare us for communion with him for eternity. Well, all this is well and good, but what does that mean for us? If that has not been explicit so far, let's make it so. For those who are so loved by God, it is God's will that we not only be the recipients of that love, but that we also love others that God places in our lives with that same godly love. What are the two great commandments? Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? He was asked, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We see the latter affirmed in the book as we study Galatians 6.2. You see the same thing. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, let's look at the definition again then as we apply it and apply it to God and then to each other. The definition we gave earlier, God, godly love is to so highly value another that you willingly commit to act and to seek the other's best no matter the cost to yourself. First in reference to God, ask yourself, do you value God? I mean, does the very thought of God lift you up? 
Does it generate thoughts of praise and thanks? Now, maybe you're young, and maybe you're not there yet. You might say, well, no, I just I mean, I go to church and go, go home, go to school. Uh, but you can be, and, and you want to be. Uh, you want to be at that place as you grow in the faith where just the very mention of the word of God, of God himself, conjures up ideas in you and thoughts of, wow. And you do that as you study your word, as you continue to come to church, and you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In reference to our definition, it means that you're willing to commit to him then as well, uh, through the surrender of your life to him, to publicly confess him before men despite the cost. In our own Reformed tradition, it's to take covenant vows and to live as becomes a follower of Christ, and then to act in accordance with that vow in regular worship, prayer, and meditation upon his word. How about in reference to others? Do you truly value others more than yourself? Read in Philippians 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember, we're not talking about sentimentality or being hypocritical, but instead choosing to place others above yourself. It's a choice, it's an action, it's not a feeling that we're seeking, although feelings may or may not be there. Does this mark you? Are you growing in your ability and practice of valuing others more than you value yourself? The bar is high. We read passages such as 1 Corinthians 13. It's a whole chapter on love, the love chapter. We realize that the love that God showed for us and what he calls us to show to others so far surpasses anything, anything that the world offers. Husbands are to love their wives, to value them so highly that they commit and act to seek out their best no matter the cost, even as Christ loved the church. Wives are to love their husbands by encouraging and affirming their leadership and covenantal responsibility and representative role. Parents are to love their children with godly love, which includes discipline according to the scripture and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now you might say to yourself, I, I don't think I can do that, but that's kind of the point that Paul's making here in Galatians 5, isn't it? He's saying the same God who loves you this way indwells you in the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. As a spirit indwells us, he works in us to will and to do the pleasure of God, to produce the fruit of that relationship. How can you love others? Well, God has given you a spiritual gift, for example, by which you can minister to others in the body. This might not, it, no, it will take energy and time on your part. But isn't that the very picture of what we've seen tonight in God's self-sacrificial love for us? He stopped, he looked at that child, and then he put his time and effort and work to love that child into something wonderful. Let me just say pastorally in closing that I've seen this kind of love grow in our church. And I can't tell you how much that thrills me and thrills the other pastors and your elders and your deacons. And I would say probably you with one another as you look and you say, I love being around these people. I want to encourage you all the more to persevere. I think of the church in Ephesus that says you lost your first love. Let us not lose our first love of Christ, and then as it's manifested uh, in the lives of others. What did the writer of Hebrews say? 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Brothers and sisters, stay the course. And may the Lord be blessed and glorified as we seek to love one another as he loves us. Let's pray. Father, indeed, this love that you have demonstrated to us in your son's death on the cross is something that is so hard for us to truly grasp. And yet, to the extent that we do, we can't but respond in thankfulness and joy and praise for your choosing us to be part of your family and to know what it is to commune with our holy God. Thank you, Father, for these truths that we have learned and help us then to apply them.